Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my No Books Required chat with Andrew Dice Clay. I'm going to warn you, the audio isn't great, but when the options are speak to Dice by phone or don't speak to Dice at all, well, you speak to Dice by phone. First of all, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Biographies and Memoirs or Sports category for episode number 150 with Charles Farrell on Low Life. I'm Charles Farrell. I'm the author of Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. And this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Taking a break from books today for the latest in my series of No Books Required Conversations, this one with Andrew Dice Clay. He is an actor, writer, producer, and comedy legend, thanks to an act that is one of the most controversial and outrageous in stand-up. Dice, thank you for the time. How you doing today? You're doing great. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you as well. You know, considering how the world melted down during the COVID pandemic over the last year and a half or so, does it feel pretty good to be getting back out there performing stand-up around the country? But you know what? I was considered one of the first out there during the pandemic. You know, I was in places like Pittsburgh at an outside venue in 27-degree weather because, I don't know, I just couldn't take it anymore, like a lot of people, but... You know, I just wanted to bring a little laughter. You know, it was just too much. So I was completely bundled up, you know, with the long... I couldn't even bend over. That's how cold it was. But people were out there with blankets, chairs, their alcohol, and just... I really loved it. And I just recently went back to that place because of how much I loved it. So, yeah, I was considered one of the first good names to go out during the pandemic. Was it just a matter of you not being able to accept that you were going to be stuck in your home for however long, that you were going to figure out whatever it took, even if it meant standing outside in sub-freezing temperatures with a bunch of other people who were freezing their asses off, but still wanted to laugh because at that time there wasn't a whole lot else to laugh at? I'll tell you what else I did in clubs that were um, indoors. (laughs) <laughs> they would build a plexiglass cage for me. Oh, my gosh. You know, like in, uh, I went, where did I do that? One of the first places was Governors in Long Island. Then I did um, House of Comedy in Phoenix. And it was so hot, but it was also funny. Because I would make fun of it. I'd call it Dice in a Cage. <laughs> And uh, I still wound up getting sick for a while. Oh, is that right? You tested positive for COVID at one point? Uh, Yeah, at one point. It was actually before I ever went out. And then as soon as they came out, I got, you know, vaccinated as soon as I could. Glad to hear that. And I'm somebody who uh, follows the comedy scene here in Austin. I don't recall seeing your name a whole lot over the last five-plus years now. Have you done much stand-up here in Austin, Andrew? Well, I haven't come to Texas in a while, but I've done, you know, I mean, my stand-up career. I mean, right now, I mean, I'm going through all of it because of the fact that um, there's a company, they're doing the Dice documentary. It's called Behind the Leather. And Texas is actually one of the first places I did headline when I was up and coming 
after I did this Red Fox video called Dirty Dirty Joe, which came out on VHS tape years ago. So one of the first places where it wasn't Austin, but it was Dallas, the comedy corner. I used to go all over San Antonio. I don't even know if I ever did Austin. Even when I was doing the arena shows, I don't think I did Austin. I know I did Dallas and Houston, but I don't think Austin. But I'm looking forward to it because this is something I call the boutique tour. And I only do the one show a night. Like last night, I did an hour and a half because there was no pressure to get rid of the crowd and bring in a second crowd. So I've now stopped just doing the two shows a, a night type of thing. Well, that's nice because you can take your time. And I'd have to imagine, even for you as somebody that has sold out arenas, literally the first comic to ever sell out Madison Square Garden two nights in a row, it's Mm -hmm. nice to do smaller venues. It seems like that would be an easier audience to work with versus 15,000, 20,000, 30,000 of your closest friends. Well, look at it this way. I definitely had a goal. When I started in stand-up, I didn't really study comedians. I studied rock stars, drummers, bigger than my personality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when I was coming up in comedy, I'm a drilling guy. The one thing I really never liked about comedians was I would get kind of bored after like 10 minutes because they didn't move around a lot. There was no performance. They were funny. And that's why, like, years ago, not to really get into it, but comics used to just be opening acts for, like, singers. You know what I mean? They didn't have to perform a lot. When I would see this, I would be, like, become more than that. Become, like, a rock star of comedy. Because the image I created was already done in, let's say, rock and roll with, let's say, Elvis Presley. Then you saw the movies, everything from James Dean all the way up to, like, Travolta and Stallone. And, you know, on TV in the 70s, you had um, Henry Winkler playing the songs. But what I realized that that kind of image had never happened in the world of stand-up comedy. And that's what I created, like an in-concert type of performer. And, I mean, I've done everything. I mean, one of the gigs that had postponed with the pandemic was Carnegie Hall, for instance, because I just never played there. I've done Radio City. I've done The Garden. I've done, I forgot the name of the arena in Houston, but they probably changed the name because it was, I did over 300 of those shows. I mean, the arena tours would sell out, I don't know, an hour and a half, 20 arenas in a row. You know, it was like half a million people every time I went out. So by 95, I burnt out with that. And it was like, enough of this. Like, I just couldn't handle it. I did over 12 million people, you know. So now I just really enjoy, you know, life moves on. I do more movie stuff. I just did the... Um, Pam and Tommy, which is the Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee miniseries for uh, Greg Gillespie, who did Itania. So it's a miniseries for uh, Hulu about what went on 
when that tape came out, the porn tape. Something more acting. I mean, the last movie was The Star Was Born. I played God as Dad. So I'm more into the acting stuff. And as far as the stand-up, I love really doing the club thing. Because that's really how stand-up was meant. I like that I influenced a generation or two of comics to want to play the giant places. But when I see that now, even like... And Bill Burr is a friend of mine. One of the great new comics. He's incredible. He does the big arena stuff. When I talk to him about it, I go, when I see it on like Netflix or, you know, wherever he does his specials, I just look at him and go, oh, man, I'm glad that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I'm just done with that. You know what I mean? Joe Rogan's been doing a million of them. He goes out with Chappelle. I think they just did like a week at the Vegas arena. I think at the MGM. I mean, it's incredible what's gone on with stand-up now. Well, and you were a trailblazer and somebody who has influenced so many stand-up comics since you. Uh, it's, it's not surprising to hear so many of them speak with such admiration about you. Did you ever think during the height of your powers as you were working your way up in the 1980s and uh, getting as big as you were in the early 90s that 30 years later you'd be a sort of elder statesman for the art of stand-up? <laughs> I actually didn't. I mean, I was even shown a guy on, um, I forgot what his name Italian kid, something like Tony Dice, like DJ Tony Dice, <laughs> like this. And I, I'm like, geez, there's no end to this. <laughs> but I will say, like, about somebody like Joe Rogan, who, you know, I mean, you know, we all know where his career is now, and it's, it's amazing. I love watching it. And he really is like the one guy, he's a very confident guy. He's a talented guy, obviously, but he's confident in being the man he is. And every time he has a comic on, he just did it with Tarantino, but he does it with comics that my name will come up. And what's funny is when I watch it, like I could tell the comics that are really into me and not into me and they want to talk about themselves. But it's funny because the ones that aren't into it, He'll just talk about me even longer. It's hysterical for me. He really has my back with this whole thing. I mean, you know, I'm saying it. I mean, I know this is going to air in Austin, but when my career took off, the point I'm making is nobody really got behind it. Comics were bad-mouthing myself. You know what I mean? They were coming after me. And so, yeah, it does feel good when guys like Wilbur and Joe Rogan and Chappelle and they go, Dice is the guy that did this. Because even Joe will say, he goes, yeah, a lot of comics are doing moving this today because he took it to that level. But when Dice did it, it was an explosion. It wasn't about followers. You know what I mean? It wasn't about, you know, see, today it's real simple. If you really know how to work with social media, you could actually build up and sell out giant places, but yet the rest of the world has no knowledge of you. But when I did it, there was no social media. So it was newsworthy. It's just amazing. It doesn't matter if you're in music, comedy, you can really build those followings. 
today. It's amazing. And walk down the street and nobody will know who the hell you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a different it's, world it's we really live in. It's a strange phenomenon. The other night, there was a TikTok star at my show in Long Island. Of course, I don't know who he is. And they're going, do you know who's here? And they said his name. And I go, I just don't know what... He's got two million followers. I go, yeah, but I'm not 19 years old. <laughs> I don't know who it is. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah, but just that that's become something gigantic is amazing to me. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's amazing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Rogan because I feel like it was last week I heard he and Ari Shafir uh, talking about their admiration for you. And, of course, those guys met you at the Comedy Store, which is one of your home clubs. That was started and turned into what it still is by Mitzi Shore, who Rogan says is the most important person in the history of stand-up who isn't a comic. I've heard he and so many others talk about that moment when Mitzi finally passed them, making them paid regulars at the Comedy Store. Do you recall when she passed you in the night? 1980s, and what was that feeling like? Obviously, I know Ari. I just put out the funny video of him from the comedy store with me. And uh, it was in the kitchen where he crashes into the door with a skateboard. It's <laughs> <laughs> got like 20, 30,000 views already. You know, I don't really play too much with the social media stuff. But um, yeah, I got passed the very first night. Wow. Okay. And well, I didn't do the act, you know. It wasn't dice. It was an impressions act. I would come on stage looking like Jerry Lewis when he did the movie, The Nutty Professor. And I would take my magic formula and I would turn into John Travolta from Greece. <laughs> okay? And the whole act, you know, I'd be up there talking like Travolta and go, I can't believe it. How'd that happen? You know, like the real Barbara, you know, Tony Manero. And the act would end with me doing Grease Lightning. The actual song, Grease Lightning. It would just kill. So the very next day, I got a call from the comedy store. And I was only supposed to be out there for two weeks. Mitzi wants you to come and sign papers. You've been accepted as a regular at the comedy store. What was funny is the audition I did, you know, you're only supposed to do like, um, I don't know, three minutes in front of Mitzi. I did 28 minutes, okay? Because the act was the act. And I'm coming off the stage and this guy starts screaming at me. This is the night I auditioned. And he goes, you're never going to work this club again. Yeah, and it's the F word, but that's what he said. <laughs> you know, you're not going to watch this club again. I want you to And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I go, are you the owner? And he goes, no, I'm the MC here. I go, I go, then you need to get out of my way. <laughs> I didn't come 3,000 miles to do three minutes. Get out of my way, or I'll get you out of my way. <laughs> and the very next day, you know, wanted me at the Westwood Comedy Store, and she just let me develop. See, everybody loves Mitzi because Mitzi had, just like Clive Davis, had the ear, you know what I mean? He has the ear to hear the singers and the stars. Mitzi had the eye to spot potential in up-and-coming comics. And that's why we all love her, because 
She did find Rogan. She did find me. She found everybody. You know, the list just goes on and on. Before me, after me. And, yeah, that's why she was named the queen. You know, she just knew. And I'll tell you something else. When you would be on stage in front of Nixie, everybody, including myself, I don't care if Robin Williams came in, if she was in the room, you were nervous on stage because you had so much respect for her and love for her, you wanted to kill the crowd. So you felt pressure. You know what I mean? Mm. It was unreal when she was in the room. So that's why they talk about her the way they do. She was incredible. A guy that this town is very fond of and uh, somebody that's no longer with us is Bill Hicks. Did you ever cross paths with Bill? And if so, do you have any fond memories of him? Well, Bill, when he first came out to L.A., he would stay, like I lived at Crest Hill. Now, that's a house that came along with the comedy store when Missy got it. She didn't live there, but she would put, like, I was up there, Yako Smirnoff, the Russian comic, was up there. Tom Wilson, who wound up playing Jeff in all the Back to the Future movies, mm-hmm. was up there. Dan Frischman, who wound up in Saved by the Bell. You know, the guy with the broken glasses, like the nerdy type. He wound up there for years. So when Bill Hicks first came to L.A., she would put him up there, you know. And um, we didn't hang a lot, you know. And he didn't well up through the years. He became a good comic. You know, he was more in the... Uh, I always felt that he was trying to be more like Kenneth. Yeah, and they were tight too, correct? I don't know how close they were. I was close to Sam till my career took off. He didn't mm-hmm. like that. Because Sam was doing like four and 5,000 seaters. And I was on a show on TV. It was more of an acting thing. It wasn't a Michael Mann show called Crime Story. It was his show that he did after um, Miami Vice. So I was on that. But, yeah, when my career went through the roof, when the Rodney Dangerfield special, Tennyson just couldn't handle it. He looked at Hicks because he was on the same special, only Hicks didn't become like as big as, let's say, Sam. You know what I mean? Yeah, he got a little bit of popularity over in the U.K., but it never hit in America, or at least it didn't hit at all until really after he died, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he was a good comic, you know. If I had the two to choose from, I would have... Well, even when I went through it with Sam, like if you were feeding, because Sam started a whole feed with me, if I was at the comedy store and he's at the comedy store and he went on stage... I'm going in the room to watch because he was great. That's it. He made me laugh, so I didn't care. You know? Mm-hmm. He just couldn't help that I was doing like stadiums and arenas. You know, it just paid away a couple people like that. Dice, we're at a weird point in society right now where people are having to be incredibly careful about what they say out of fear of having their careers and lives ruined by the most hypersensitive among us. Stand-up comedy seems to be one of those last frontiers where this isn't the case, considering that you are the guy who was once banned for life from MTV, although that was overturned a decade ago. Do you worry that this cancel culture mindset will eventually infect the world of stand-up, too? Well, it is. Look at all the guys that are getting hurt from it. You know, and I'm not going to say their names, but 
I just don't believe in the cancel culture thing. I mean, 32 years ago when my career took off, I was the cancel culture, but <laughs> I just kept going anyway. Yeah. There was just no name for it. When I had the Now organization after me and all the gay rights groups after me, and it was just jokes, you know. But I didn't back up, and here I am all these years later, kicking ass, taking names, doing TV shows, doing my own show for a couple of seasons. You know, work with directors like Scorsese and Woody Allen and Bradley Cooper. And so I just don't care about it. You know, I'm going to go on stage. I'm going to do the act I do. And, of course, obviously, through the years, i got a ton of material. The, the people coming out to the Vulcan will not be disappointed. Yeah, I constantly work on it. And that's the only thing I do from the old days would be like um, the dirty Mother Goose stuff, which I wind up doing because crowds love it. And I don't mind doing it to them. You know, it's funny because they still love to do it with me. But I talk about the, I talk about everything, you know, whatever's on my mind. I don't hold that at all, ever. He is Andrew Dice Clay, a comedy legend, thanks to an act that is one of the most controversial and outrageous in stand-up. Dice, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this career in stand-up. Thank you. Thank you. Join me next time when I speak with Pulitzer Prize winner and former New York Times investigative reporter Barry Meyer on Spooked, the Trump dossier, Black Cube, and the rise of private spies. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.